Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 91. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, before we get into today's episode, we just want to remind you as always that if you do enjoy these podcasts, please feel free to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories. If you are listening on iTunes, you can always feel free to please leave us a review and a rating. And, you know, if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. You can also Google the Bodybuilding Dietitians or click the links in any of the show notes below or our Instagram bios. And of course, we don't just coach comp prep competitors. We do coach anyone with health and fitness related goals. So Jack, without further ado, getting into episode 91, the first question for the day. This one says, why do you start comp prep so early? Cool, so to set the scene for most of our competitors, and it will depend on the individual, but usually we start around 25 weeks out. Mm -hmm. And then before that as well, we also ensure that they are a certain body weight from stage weight. So Mm -hmm. there might even be a diet beforehand as well. And I'm sure that that can seem very excessive to some people, but the whole process of competing is excessive. Yeah. It's an excessive sort of action to do and it shouldn't be taken lightly. Like if you're going to compete, I mean, there's so many different reasons why you might want to compete, but if you want to do it competitively and show up on stage at the correct body fat for your category, then usually you'll, you'll be surprised at how much weight you have to lose. And we want to do that as healthy as possible. We also want to do it to maintain your training performance throughout. And if we do something very short, we're kind of basically limiting a lot of those factors. Yeah, I certainly think that taking a longer comp prep approach definitely helps you apply more evidence-based practice, right? Into actually taking care of someone and ensuring that they show up on stage, right? With the most lean mass retention possible, with the least body fat retention possible, and truly just looking their best, right? Like, I think gone are the days where people think that they can do eight or 12 or even 16 week preps, right? And the reason for that is because Bodybuilding is becoming very, very competitive. More and more people are competing year after year, right? And the standard is really freaking high. And the standard just keeps getting higher and higher, not even between years, but between seasons, right? Between shows, season A to B every single year, the competitors are moving the divisions. So the thing is that you might talk to someone who competed like, you know, six years ago, back in 2014, and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I had this PT at the gym and they said, oh, you should do a comp. And you know, like I bought a bikini and I hopped on stage two weeks later and I didn't even know how to pose and I want a first place trophy, right? And like that can give some people the wrong impression that like, oh my God, I could do a two week prep or if I was extreme, I could do an eight week Mm. prep. But man, look at the pictures of the physiques from somewhere like 2014, even 2015, heck, even 2017, whatever. Not that many years ago, people look completely different in every category, right? Like especially the bikini category for females has changed dramatically, right? Like the standard of leanness that a bikini girl has to get to now, way different to a few years ago. 
even bodybuilding men, right? Like bodybuilders who would have won a few years ago. And we're talking about more natural federations here as well, right? Particularly the natural federations. But like a bodybuilder who might have placed first in 2014, man, he probably wouldn't even get top 10 now in 2020. Yeah, especially when it comes down to leanness. Like mm-hmm. muscularity, I'm sure it would be quite similar. Yeah. But especially like the striated glutes, Nowadays, and like this is a topic of controversy, but whether somebody who is bigger without striated glutes beats someone or loses to someone who is smaller with striated glutes. Yeah. And there definitely is a balance. Like, you sh- I don't think, personally, I don't think someone who should become first place just because they're the biggest, but they're lacking a lot of conditioning. But definitely, if someone is significantly bigger than someone else and is not quite as lean, Ultimately, it's a bodybuilding contest, yeah. so it, you should reward muscularity more to an extent more than leanness, I believe. And that's coming from me, someone who can get quite lean, but I'm not going to be the biggest guy up on the stage. Yeah, but hey, with good time, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing, right? Like the standards are so high now that people need to raise their standards. Okay, if you want to be on stage and looking your absolute best, again, gone are the days or these eight week preps, right? Because ask any bodybuilding competitor now, right? Who commits to something like, let's say a a 24 week prep, okay? That's three times as long as someone who's doing an eight week prep. They get eight weeks through their prep, right? And they're like, I am so grateful that I gave myself 24 weeks because guys, we all know how fast the days and the weeks just fly by, okay? Like personally, I would be freaked out if I was only giving my itself eight weeks to get in competition shape and i would argue that if you are only giving yourself i I keep using this eight week analogy right but let's just keep going with it if you are only giving yourself a short amount of time to prep i would argue that one you're just not going to be ready in time right you're not going to get on stage looking your best you're not going to be lean enough or you're going to have to take some very very drastic measures pretty much starve yourself for eight Mm. weeks and you are at a significant risk of losing a very high amount of muscle mass. And as well, if you are able to get ready in eight weeks, I would also argue that you did not maximize your potential during your improvement season to properly grow. Mm. Yeah, I think we should, I think that was probably the best answer out of this question so far (laughs) because it was a bit more structured. And following on from that line of thought, it's like one, we have to factor in body fat. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, especially girls and guys, like let's say for a guy, you, you have to lose 15 kilos, which is probably a fairly normal amount for someone who comes to a coach thinking that they're in a good spot to compete and it's their first competition as well. So they don't know how lean they have to get. How are you going to lose 15 kilos in eight weeks? That's almost two kilos of body, body weight drop a week your training performance is going to suffer a crap load. And because of that, you'll look worse. You'll lose a lot more muscle in the process as well. So just weighing up the pros and cons of a long versus short prep, or even not even a long, just a normal prep now, because it's probably only been in the recent, like maybe four years or so where it has really become a lot more evidence-based. So there's, you do the diet before the diet, which I've just finished. I did my mini cut Mm -hmm. and then you maintain or do a slight surplus Some people, if they're starting off leaner, they don't have to do that mini cut prior, but a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. And then you get into the the proper diet itself, which has the refeeds, diet breaks, uh, deloads, all that kind of stuff. So 
compare it to any other sport like basketball or rugby or American football, like you don't, you don't just see them turning up to training session like two or three days a week, just having a quick throw around with the guys and then rocking up to the game. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Jesus, like you need that prior preparation if you want to take this seriously, right? Mm. If you truly want to be competitive and call yourself a, you know, like we're not all professionals, right? If, but if you want to be a professional before you actually get that pro status, you need to act like a professional. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good answer. We could go into a bit more depth about like the energy availability and that kind of stuff. But it really, to put it succinctly, it just depends on your starting point. You don't want to shortchange yourself in terms of the rate of loss. Mm -hmm. Like anything more than a 1% rate of loss per week is quite high for a comp prep. And you want to, the most important thing is maintaining training performance as well, because that's going to mean that you retain the muscle. And it's for bodybuilding, sports model, figure, um, all those kind of ones, even Mm -hmm. men's fitness, like all of them, it all depends on muscularity. Yeah. And I think that sometimes it's the people who do these very short, very aggressive preps that sometimes give bodybuilding a bad name. You know, they're like, oh, I had such an, a terrible experience. I was on 900 calories for eight weeks straight, right? It, it was so awful. Like, got on stage and I just, I had the worst time. You should never do bodybuilding, right? Like, mm-hmm. sometimes it's these people who are kind of like the rotten eggs, right? Like, they kind of... They give the wrong interpretation for how the sport should be because they haven't unfortunately been able to get in contact with a coach to apply that evidence-based practice. Or maybe they just weren't informed themselves enough mm. before they jumped into a comp prep. So I'll play good cop here and say... Okay. I'm always I don't... the bad cop, man. I swear I'm a nice person. I'm just being honest. <laughs> I don't think they're rotten eggs. I think they maybe, maybe were just misinformed yeah. or... They, they, they had, had a, a rotten experience. Yes, I think that's a much better description <laughs> because it's not always the person's fault. No. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that mm-hmm. because there is so much misinformation. It's not, it's not like other, like I'm not as clued in regards to other sports, but there's just so much more evidence-based compared to even football or mm-hmm. rugby compared to, or endurance running compared to bodybuilding, which there's, compared to other sports or other fields, there's next mm-hmm. to no research on it yeah and I think another you know argument for why you should take a longer prep and you know give yourself more time to diet is because I think anyone who's been in this game long enough recognizes that if you have more time to actually diet you can change your body composition a hell of a lot more when you're in a dieting phase at a more rapid pace compared to when you're in an improvement season phase and actually building muscle like it's a hell of a lot easier to actually drop fat than it is to actually build skeletal muscle mass so let's say that you're like weighing up your options you're like oh should i do a 16 week prep or a 24 week prep right like realistically how much muscle are you actually going to grow in an extra eight weeks like let's be honest right you Mm. might make some improvements it's not going to be night and day right i don't think yeah it would be difficult to even measure the amount you would change in eight weeks but give someone an eight week structured cut how much body fat could they lose eight extra weeks of dieting you Mm. could make significant differences that's that is the difference between placings yeah i mean you can do the for everyone listening you can do the math right now like if you uh to let's say lose anywhere from half a percent to one percent so split that and go 0.75 
do 0.75% of your body weight at the moment for eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And you could probably lose that much body weight healthily, sustainably, and without too much difficulty. Yeah, but you're not going to gain 0.75% of your body weight and muscle mass every week. That's Mm. for damn sure. (laughs) But yeah, just think of it in that term as well. And I think another reason why, again, it might be a bit of misinformation, why this might be achievable, right? Why people might be able to do it in six or eight or 10 or 12 weeks is because these challenges that happen at the gym, right, Jack? Like, you know, you see all these posters for eight week challenge, 12 week challenge, right? Like drastically change your body comp. Like, yes, that's a challenge, right? But, and you probably could achieve some great body composition changes, but I don't like get that mixed up with yeah. actually competing in a show. Mm. The both are both are very very different. I uh, yeah, again I don't some challenges can be good because they mm-hmm. can build habits, show you what's achievable, set you on a, a decent foundation as long as it's not a cookie cutter plan. But it's not yeah, it's not to be confused with a mm-hmm. comp prep. So. And, and anecdotally, any conversation I've ever had with anyone like who's done a super short prep versus a longer prep, right? I've never heard anyone who's done a very short prep saying how great of a time they had, how successful they were, how stress-free they were. It's usually the people who do the longer preps. They're like, I'm so grateful I gave myself more time to prep. I was able to implement high days every week. I was able to implement two diet breaks. You know, I was able to eat up into the show. I brought my best physique. Mm. So, And yeah. yeah, just to as a last disclaiming point, like one, we don't, it does depend on your starting point. So mm-hmm. a bikini competitor probably could do a 16 week prep for yeah. ICN. And the other factor is this is mainly for natural athletes as well. Yes. Like the people at the Olympia, they, they do do like 12 week preps or, and something like that. The people who literally get on stage in the pinnacle of bodybuilding, yeah. but obviously that's with a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Performance enhancing drugs, just that's a whole different ball game. So mm. Certainly, we're talking about all the natties up in here, right? Preach. But uh, guys, bottom line, give yourself enough time, okay? Give yourself enough time. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. You'd rather have more time than not enough time. Yeah. Jeez, the flippin' wheeze. Okay, guys. So we are now moving on to another question. So this one says, when you program for clients, do you do everyone individually or do you use a template for all? Cool. So we thought this question would be a decent opportunity to go through our, explain our coaching in a bit more depth because it's something that we've never really done. We always just say head over to our website and yeah, I'm sure people who are interested do do that, but Mm -hmm. it might be valuable for some other people to hear about how we coach. So the short answer is no, we don't use a template. Mm -hmm. We use a software that enables us to customize everything and do everything according to the individual. So for example, like if, imagine if we did do it by a template, that means the bodybuilding clients would get the same uh, program as a bikini competitor or something like that. Or We can't have that. Both your, your and I's clients are training very differently. Everyone's training differently. Yeah. That's the main thing. Everything is tailored to the individual, right? Because everyone has a different physique goal. Everyone has different body parts they want to bring up. Everyone has different recovery demands. Their lifestyle is different. People can commit to different days of training. People are on completely different splits. People have had past injuries, so they can't do certain exercises. If someone goes to a gym, they might not have access to certain equipment. So yeah, pretty much there's nothing cookie cutter. Like Mm. if you sign up with us, absolutely everything is tailored specifically to you. And 
it's also never set in stone, right? Like we are very open to having conversations and discussions with our clients, being very flexible, working with our clients in a partnership, right? And actually tinkering around, right? So that Mm. you find what perfectly works for them. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, it's almost expectation now that when they think of a coach, they think of emails or they think of like, I don't know, just normal sheets, which the, the coach populates and you don't have any say in it. Or just WhatsApp with macros. <laughs> yeah. But with us, like to put it succinctly, like you have an initial call, which goes for a decent amount of time mm-hmm. where we know all, we get to know all about you and basically put a plan in place. Yeah. So pretty much with that initial call, we're gathering a whole bunch of information in terms of your lifestyle, exercise history, medical history, of course, your goals, dietary preferences, any medications or supplements you're on. We go through a very detailed dietary recall to really get a good idea of how you're currently fueling your body. And then we come up with some strategies and suggestions for how you can potentially modify your diet, you know, to actually reflect your goals, to, to complement mm. your nutrition, would, yeah, your sports th- nutrition. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. Like I tend to split it into like the dietetic side. Mm-hmm. So like, let's say someone's not eating enough calcium, add some calcium sources versus sports nutrition. So like protein distribution, mm-hmm. carbohydrate timing, all that kind of stuff. So I tend to split it into that, which we get from the dietary recall. Mm-hmm. And then once that's in place, we then check in weekly via video or via call. And that's basically to see how you're going, make any changes. And that's where a lot of, so in the first call, we, we set a plan in place and then we constantly evaluate it and tinker with it based on your weekly input. Yeah. And I think that's another thing as well, because personally, like I love having a video call with my clients every single week because I feel like there's such a clear line of communication, right? Like I know uh, emails work for some people, but personally, yeah, we're not, we're not discrediting any other coaches methods here. This is purely what we do. Mm. And there are amazing coaches out there who use other methods. Yeah, absolutely. But I just feel like with, with actually speaking to someone over a video call or a phone call, like, again, like there's just, they can ask so many questions. You can respond to things a a lot less gets missed, you know, because a lot of things can happen during a week and you might forget to mention or ask a few questions in an email. So there's just that clear line of communication, right? And you can focus on what the client was with successful with that week, right? And then perhaps some improvements that they need to make. And you really formulate a game plan together for what they can try to work on the next coming week. And it's just progressing, right? And what about with our templates, Jack? What sort of, you know, information are we tracking there? Yeah. So the, the thing with online coaching is that you can't see them in person. So you need to get a lot of data from them in order to see what's going on. So we, we track training, which is quite in depth, like frequency, volume, intensity, mm-hmm. progression, and then the macro side of things. And then within macros, we obviously do the dietary recall. Mm-hmm. We can add you on my fitness power, look at what you're eating and that side of things as well. It goes a bit more like water, fiber, pretty much the whole big picture of nutrition. Yeah, essentially as dietitians, we care more about than just protein, carbs, fat, and fiber, right? Like Mm. we genuinely care about how are you actually nourishing yourself? Are you meeting your micronutrient requirements too? Always checking in on those things because that's if like there's a difference between surviving and thriving, so. Mm. And we, we also track like body weight steps mm-hmm. and just a general tracking sheet to, to see where you, how you're going. And um, yeah. it's important to, 
to still track things like body weight Mm -hmm. regardless of your goal i think yeah oh i couldn't agree more you know just having a healthy relationship with the scale and just recognizing it's simply just a data point and Mm. we're not so much interested in what your weight is on a random monday morning right like we're always taking averages but Uh, across the week and we're always identifying weekly trends so okay right across the last three weeks has body weight been slowly trending upwards or downwards have you been maintaining and how does that align with what we're trying to achieve here with your goals yeah totally yeah yeah I think that that was a pretty good summary and I think the only other thing that is different is with the training as well like we provide a customized training template with very specific exercises but you know specific days that you're going to be training what routines you're doing but with the sets the reps and the weight and the clients is always providing us with that information every week on how many total reps they completed so pretty much we take all the guessing out of it we actually update our clients programs every single week with the new sets reps and the weight we want them to lift based off their previous week's performance. So they just need to go into the gym, look at what we've prescribed, give it their best shot, tell us how they've done, and then we can keep pushing them the following week. Because that's one thing like, uh, and again, I'm not bag mouthing any other coaching practice, but I've experienced this in the past too, right? You write a standard training program and you're like, cool, like you're gonna do chest press, three sets of eight, and I want you to pick the weight, right? Before you know it, it's been two months and you've been lifting the exact same weight on a chest mm. press machine because there's there hasn't been that external push to just go up on the next pin. So if you constantly have that external person saying like, no, you got, you know, you got three sets of 10 last week with this weight. Like, let's go back to three sets of eight next week, but we're going to put up the weight by 2.5 kilograms. Tell me how you go. You're constantly improving, inching forward. And over time, that compound effort, that's what leads to results. Yeah, I think it's it's also not just other coaches. It's also can be the individual mm, as well. Like yeah. some people do kind of expect the results to just come once they get a coach. Yeah. Oh, I was in that position for years. Yeah. I held myself back so many times, right? Like I said, like before you know it, it's been two months. You've been shoulder pressing the same weight. And the only reason why one day you actually go up is because someone else is using your dumbbells. So mm. you've got to use the 17.5s instead of the 15s. And then you match reps with the 17.5s. And you're like, shit, man, why haven't I been doing this the last two months? I've clearly been strong enough. So yeah, if that goes to show, just track your training, no matter if you have a coach or not, track your flip and training. Mm. Totally. Mm. Let's uh, move on there to the Very next good. one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. So this next question, this says squats or hip thrusts. If you could only do one for the rest of your life, Jack, you got to pick. Yeah, it's, it's pretty, we're going to have different answers, but mine would be squats. <laughs> and mine would be hip thrusts, you know, <laughs> but let's hope that, well, I don't even do squats now. I do a squat pattern, right? Mm. Like I do leg press and, you know, Bulgarians obviously to work my quads and stuff, but I don't actually do barbell back squats, but that makes sense, right? For you to obviously work your quads a hell of a lot more. Mm. And as a bikini competitor, like my glutes are a much larger priority than my quads. Yeah. However, I'm still definitely trying to bring up my quads because they are my weakest point. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess the squats work the glutes a small amount, Mm -hmm. not a different region of the 
the glutes yeah so the squats they more they stretch the glutes so they work the lower fibers of the glutes and especially only if you're actually probably going down below parallel mm. like if you're only doing half squats or stuff you're pr- basically just using your quads you're not really getting much uh maximizing your glute contractions there but they pretty much just work the lower fibers of the glutes so imagine that stretching action they really stretch the lower fibers of the glutes so similar to something like a lunge or an rdl right but what's actually really unique about the barbell hip thrust and learned this from brett Contreras in his glute lab book highly recommended read for anyone out there like if you want to build your glutes does it include diagrams yeah it includes plenty of diagrams my man <laughs> but the unique thing about barbell hip thrusts is that they actually work the lower and the upper fibers of the glutes simultaneously. And if you do put a resistance band either below or above your knees, pushing outwards during the movement as well, you can get some glute med action in there too. So it's almost like an an abduction, right? So that's what's so phenomenal about barbell hip thrusts is that you can really target the glutes from so many angles simultaneously during one movement. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of people say that like the barbell hip thrust isn't necessary to build like a decent set of glutes. And I, I can agree with that to an extent, but it's kind of like saying all you need to build a back is the barbell row. Mm-hmm. But like there's there's three different planes of the glutes. Like, yeah. I don't know, some physios might be shaking their heads right now, but <laughs> like, and, but there are three different ways to target that. So like the, the barbell hip thrust, the squat, mm-hmm. and the, the abduction sort of exercise, yeah. like a, the abduction machine. And... Like you wouldn't do the same for a, a bar for your back. Like you wouldn't just do a barbell row, which is hitting it in the horizontal plane. You would want to hit it in the vertical plane yeah, by exactly. a lap pull down as well, and some other other variations of angles mm-hmm. as well. And that's the beauty of going to a gym that's filled with so many different pieces of equipment and having all of this knowledge, right? All these different ways to move our body because we can truly maximize our physique, right? It's like, hypothetically, we're never gonna be in one of these hypothetical situations where it's like, you can only squat or you can only hip thrust, right? Well, we were during ISO. Uh, no, we were doing squats and hip thrusts. <laughs> we were doing it all. We had a gym in this dining room. But uh, yeah, hopefully hopefully that answers your question. I guess Jack would do squats, I'd do hip thrusts, but It would be now, a more difficult question if it was like squats or leg press for mm-hmm. me. For you, it might be maybe like, hip thrusts or RDLs that would be tougher that would be tough I'd probably have to pick the RDL yeah mm. that pro- because like obviously it works your glutes and your hamstrings you're not really working your hamstrings very much in a hip thrust yeah but uh I'm, I'm grateful we're not in this situation you yes, know <laughs> just hypothetically <laughs> all right so this next question says what is the difference between sea salt and table salt should we consume more sea salt Hmm. So interesting question. So luckily both are salt, both have sodium in them. Uh, table salt, it pretty much comes from mining salt deposits from the earth and then sea salt comes from evaporated seawater. So that's one of the main differences there, but both have sodium. That's the Mm. main thing. (laughs) That's, uh, when it comes to salt, what we think about is one sodium, Mm -hmm. which is an essential nutrient also an electrolyte as well. And then we also look at iodine and it is quite popular now for salt to be iodized. And that's because iodine is difficult to obtain through foods normally. So they fortify it in table salts. That's why you should, in preference, we recommend people look for iodized table salts. And especially in third world countries, 
there iodine deficiency is is quite common mm -hmm. and that can cause some very unfortunate side effects like cretinism hypothyroidism uh, a goiter as well which is basically when the thyroid gland swells quite considerably yeah it can be absolutely tragic and i remember in uni when we actually saw some documentaries in nutrition science relating to these third world countries where they just weren't getting enough iodine in their diet and you know with cretinism right it just basically stunts your growth and it can lead to mental deficiencies right and also deafness it's it's pretty tragic right and the easiest way to actually you know prevent that is literally just iodizing salt because they have plenty they have plenty of salt in those countries right but they mm. just need to iodize it and iodine right it's an essential nutrient and it is involved in thyroid hormone health right so when you and we know that thyroid hormone it is heavily involved in regulating our metabolic rate and our metabolism and whenever you hear someone talk about thyroid hormone and they're talking about T3 or T4, that actually relates to the number of iodine molecules on that little thyroid hormone. So T3 would have three iodines, right? T4 would have four iodines. So mm. just a, a little fun fact there. But yeah, regardless if you are consuming table salt, sea salt, pink Himalayan salt, whatever type of salt you're having, right? it really go for the iodized versions, right? The iodine fortified versions, and they do have iodized fortified versions for all of these, right? They do? Yeah, they do. Even pink Himalayan salt, mm. just get the ones that are fortified with iodine. Yeah, like the, the final point I'll make is that so salt isn't revolutionary, whether it's Celtic sea salt or pink Himalayan sea salt. You got to remember how much of that you're actually consuming, mm -hmm. like whether it's like one gram a day, mm -hmm. you're not going to get your calcium intake or your iron intake. <laughs> the only thing you might get is your iodine intake and your sodium intake from salt. You're yeah. not going to get anything else from it. You might get some trace minerals or some phytonutrients, yeah. but it's not going <laughs> to. And when we say trace minerals, even that is generous, right? Because yeah. like you'll hear right people tout about pink Himalayan salts and how it has over 80 you know essential nutrients or something dude if i went out to the garden and ate a handful of dirt <laughs> i'm probably gonna get more vitamins and minerals from that dirt than my pink himalayan salt all right like even though and we've talked about this how even though a food has a nutrient in it it mm. doesn't make it a good source of that nutrient so if you crack some pink himalayan salt onto your meal and you're like oh i've heard that this is a great source of calcium but it has like half a milligram of mm. calcium and you need a yeah. thousand milligrams per so day per weight <laughs> for the weight it might be a good source of calcium mm -hmm. like it might be 50% calcium, which is amazing. That's quite <laughs> substantial. But then when you actually think about how much you're consuming, yeah. it's just very, very poor. You also got to think about the bioavailability as well. And what that means is that when you actually consume it, it gets to your stomach, what happens from there? Mm -hmm. So does it is it actually absorbed well in the small intestine? Or is the other components of that food, like oxalates or tannins, yeah. um, interfering with the absorption? Mm. Here, Here's an example. Okay, imagine you crack some pink Himalayan salt onto your steak, right? And that pink Himalayan salt has like half a milligram or one milligram of calcium, but your steak has a bunch of iron in it, right? We know iron and calcium compete with one another mm. <laughs> for absorption. But so hell, man, there goes your one milligram of calcium. See you later. Should have used iodized table salt. <laughs> and and just to clue you guys in, like the, the calcium requirements per day are 1,000 milligrams. Mm. And you've got one milligram through the salt. So. Yeah. Hey, you're <laughs> one thousandth of the way there. But 
to be honest, I've actually never tried pink Him- Himalayan salt. People say it tastes really good. Maybe we need to try it, but we'll just get the iodized mm. version. But yeah, just think about the big ticket items there, guys. Sodium and iodine, okay? Mm. The only other places you're going to get iodine from is if you're actually like eating seaweed or if you're eating certain vegetables that actually have been grown in iodine-rich soil. Mm. And uh, some bread is fortified yeah, with iodine. Yeah, I think it's mandatory here in Australia that all bread actually has to be fortified with things like iodine folate maybe as well. But uh, that just goes to show, guys, it's an essential nutrient. So yep. yeah, it's cool. Awesome. So I think we answered that well. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much wraps up all the questions for today. And as always, we'll end on something that we learned this week. So I'll let Tierra kick that off. So what I learned this week is that Jack actually taught me how to do vacuums, you know, because especially here in the health... She really doesn't clean enough. <laughs> actually, I love to vacuum. We, we've got a great vacuum. I actually like vacuuming, but I mean stomach vacuums over here. All right. So... Jack taught me how to do stomach vac- vacuums and you know anyone involved in the health and fitness industry or pretty much any sport right but especially physique competitors I think actually doing st- stomach vacuums regularly is becoming more and more common you know and preached about but essentially stomach vacuums it pretty much works your transverse abdominis which is that muscle underneath your rectus abdominis so your rectus abdominis is pretty much the six-pack the transverse abdominis is that musculature behind the six-pack and actually being able to work your transverse abdominis by doing stomach vacuums right it can help with posture control and also just basically abdominal control right and abdominal Mm. stability which is just really going to help me as a physique competitor especially with my posing when i'm on stage and i'm having to you know contract my core and pose and twist and just having very good abdominal control so jack taught me how to do those this morning and I think I was actually already doing them as a kid. I remember like doing these as a kid for years, but like obviously not consistently. Just because cool. cause I was cool. So it's just like, hey guys, check out my stomach. And I go, and just like, you know, like stomach would be totally concaved. So I've done that before, but um, Jack's now taught me the proper technique. So mm. start doing those consistently every single morning on top of my morning yoga as well. I found just doing yoga over the past few months, just 15 to 20 minutes every morning, right? That has helped phenomenally with my abdominal control, my breathing. And I think I can really see a difference now in my core as well, of course, combined with resistance training exercise, but all of these things tied in together because I'm about estimated around 20 weeks out now from the show. So if I can keep doing stomach vacuums consistently every single morning between now and the shows and further on, Hopefully it really makes a difference with just my core stability on stage because, you know, posing's one thing, but it's your posing stamina, right? And actually being a fit poser and being able to actually hold poses on stage and not just like completely relaxing and your stomach goes. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I learned this week, how to do a stomach vacuum. So thank you very much, Mr. Teacher. Pleasure. <laughs> so Jack, what did you learn this week? So I learned something about barbell squatting, actually. Mm. And I saw my physio this week because I've just been getting some nerve pain in my bicep and forearm. And it's stemming from my barbell squats because I've gotten to the weight now, which is tough and it's also heavy. And that's due to my technique, like my elbow position in the squat. It's just putting a lot of strain on, I'm not exactly, but on the musculature of the shoulder, which is starting to compress the nerves, I think. And 
so yeah, Scott basically showed me some some different form for my barbell squatting mm-hmm. relating to my elbow and shoulder position. So before I would keep a neutral wrist, but put my elbows up really high. So they were almost in line with my shoulders, but mm-hmm. now I'm doing the opposite. So I'm keeping my elbows down. So they're more so um, in line with my torso. And basically that'll put um, pressure off my shoulders and hopefully reduce that nerve pain but I'll just have to make sure to keep a lot more upper back tightness because mm. before I was almost using my arms and shoulders to secure the bar, which as you can imagine, if I'm squatting 150, that's a lot of strain on my on my arms and shoulders mm. compared to just using your upper back to, to stabilize the weight and kind of backing off on the arms. Yeah, and that's what you see a lot of power lifters do. You know, like when you see videos of them or of course them doing it in person, but when they go under the bar, right? And they really pinch their shoulder blades back, put those elbows back and down, right? Mm -hmm. Get in that really strong position. So yeah, I'm excited to watch you squat next Tuesday. Should be good. Hopefully it is pain-free. Yeah, Yeah. I hope so too. Fingers crossed. (laughs) All right, guys. So thank you so much for tuning in for episode 91. Remember, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll catch you next week. See you guys.